Well, good morning, everyone. Joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and glad to see everyone here today. And as Phil said, we're, we're going to be continuing to talk about the living church this morning in prayer. So we're, uh, we're going to continue in our series today. We're going to be looking at two parables from Luke chapter 18, the gospel of Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Let's pray before we read. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks once again for the opportunity to come together as your people. And Lord, as we, as we go through this series, even as we, uh, as we go past this series soon uh, and move into other studies of Scripture, Lord, we pray uh, that we would be a living church. We pray that you would make us a church that is alive in Christ, that your Holy Spirit would be active working among us in our individual lives, but also in our life together. Lord, we, we desire to be a, a church that uh, is a faithful witness to you uh, amongst each other here in, in this city uh, and in this community and also uh, throughout the world in different ways. And so, Lord, we uh, put our hope and trust in you. Lord, would you do that work among us? And this morning, as we consider prayer, we ask that you would make us a praying church. So as we come to your word now, we, we, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would enlighten us today with your word. Uh, and we pray that, that the seed that is planted in us today, that it would take root and grow and produce a crop many times more than what was sown. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Luke chapter 18. And then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with this plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or, or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, he will find faith on the earth. And to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, as Phil said, we're continuing this morning in our sermon series, The Living Church. And it's appropriate that we have congregational prayer uh, before uh, this time this morning because we're going to be talking about prayer today. And specifically, we're going to be thinking about 
praying as a church, congregational prayer, corporate prayer. How do we pray together? And so this whole series has been considering what it means to be a church that is alive in Christ, a church that is full of the Holy Spirit. What are the the qualities and the characteristics, what are the practices of a living church? What kind of fruit does a living church bear? And one of the things that, that we've talked about a few times in here during this series, and which I think is important to remember, is that to be a living church isn't something that we can bring about by our own efforts. It's only the Holy Spirit's presence amongst us that gives us life. That's really important for us to remember. You imagine, imagine a, a body. We can't just, a body can't just decide to be alive, right? Uh, it needs the work of God to bring it life. And the same is true in the church. It's the Holy Spirit's work amongst us that gives us life. It is a gift of God's grace. And so if we want to be a living church, then again, the first thing we can do is to pray and say, God, please make us a living church. Keep us a living church. Sustain the life that you have given to us. I like what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, near the beginning. Uh, there's a, there was a rivalry going on between different leaders of the church. Some people said, I like Paul, I follow him. Some people said, I like Apollos, I follow him. Some people like Peter, they followed him. And Paul says, look, who is, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Peter? He said, one person plants the seed, another waters, but it is God that makes it grow. It's God who brings life to our faith, who makes us alive in him, who makes us a living church. And so if we are a church that is alive in Christ, that is full of the Holy Spirit, then we give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And a church that is alive will have certain things about it, certain characteristics That if someone looked at it, they would be able to point to them and say, aha, that church is a living church. Just like a plant or an animal or a human being has things about them that if you look at it, you can tell that they are alive. And so there are things that we can look at 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 the church and see that we are alive in Christ. But also these are exercises that we can do that help to strengthen and nourish that life as we respond to God in faith. Through them, they open us up to the Spirit's work in us. So we think about that. These are marks of the living church, but we also want to exercise them because they help to strengthen and nourish our faith. So often uh, we look to uh, the passage that we look to in order to know what these signs are, what a living church looks like, is Acts chapter 2. We've pointed to that several times in this series, but the end of Acts chapter 2, and it gives us a snapshot of the early church, this church that formed right after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in power among them. And just after Pentecost, all of the the church was gathered together, and they were meeting regularly, and there were several things that they were committed to, that it said that they devoted themselves to in this new life and fellowship with each other. And we're told that this group, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And it's this last point, prayer, that we are going to focus on today. It's going to be the last sort of mark that we cover before we wrap up this series next Sunday morning. So prayer, talking to God, it's, it's one of the most basic exercises of our faith. 
We said the same thing about Scripture last week, and it's true. Scripture, reading Scripture, studying Scripture, it's one of the most basic things we do in our faith. So is prayer. And I think there's a lot of parallels between these two exercises. I'll speak for myself. Prayer is one of those things that I, I think, I know I'm supposed to do this. I know this is an important thing to do in my life of faith, and yet I don't ever quite feel like I'm doing it enough. And I don't ever quite feel like I'm doing it the right way. And I'm not even exactly sure how it works. And yet there's something in the mystery of praying and of fellowshipping with God in that way. That we trust that God is working in us and through us. And we are connected to God through prayer. John Calvin uh, has this to say about it. He says, prayer is the first and foremost exercise expected of God's children. And it is by prayer that we test the genuineness of our faith. Prayer is the first and foremost exercise expected of God's children. It is by prayer that we test the genuineness of our faith. Now, as we've gone through this series, I've put several quotes up there, depending on which mark of the living church we were looking at, and it all sort of emphasizes different things. Worship is the most important. Scripture is the most important. Prayer is the most important. Which one is the most important? It's a great question, right? Um, And and. I used to do, when I was doing youth ministry, we used to do a game where we called Take a Stand, and we would have everybody stand up, and we'd say, okay, listen, uh, do you like Sparta more or Slavia more, right? And everybody had to take a stand one way or the other. Do you like <laughs> Bohemians? I know, Kuhn, Bohemians, okay. Uh, and, or we'd say, do you like uh, Coke more or Pepsi more? And everybody had to take a stand, but then we would get into deeper topics. And one that I like to do is to say, which is more important in the life of faith, prayer or scripture, right? And I had somebody actually get mad at me uh, for asking that question one time, that, that I would even make them think about this. And so I think it's a good way for us to think about it. Which one is most important? They're all the most important. And maybe we shouldn't divide them in this way, right? Worship and prayer and reading scripture, we need to hold all of these things together. Uh, the same with evangelism. We can't get rid of any one of them. So today we're going to be talking about prayer, but just remember they're all the most important, okay? They're all the most important. Prayer is the first and foremost exercise expected of God's children. The second part of of Calvin's quote, though, is important, too, that it is by prayer that we test the genuineness of our faith. I remember uh, once our pastor, when I was in seminary, we were emailing uh, back and forth after I had graduated from seminary. I can't remember what it was about, but we were emailing about something, and he, he asked in one of his emails, how can I pray for you? And so I wrote back, I said, you know, you could pray that I would pray more. You could pray that I would pray more, because I felt like I needed to be praying more. And he wrote back, and I appreciate what he said, which was, he said, you know, that's really where things get real, isn't it? Uh, It says something about our faith, how much we pray. Are we really trusting and relying on God, or are we trusting and relying on ourselves and our own strength? And our prayer lives demonstrate something about where we are placing our faith. Prayer is, is one of the marks of a living church. A living church, its members are going to pray on their own, and they will pray together, corporately, together. Often we think of prayer as an individual exercise, something that we do on our own with God, and of course that is part of it. Praying on our own is an important part of our life with God. And we remember that Jesus himself would go off and find quiet places where he could be alone and pray to his heavenly Father. And he also instructs his followers to do the same thing. He says, go into a quiet room, lock the door, and pray. 
by yourself. So we don't want to take away from the importance of individual prayer. But we also see that corporate prayer is very important in the life of faith too. It is vital in the life of the church. We see this in the example of the New Testament church praying together. As we already saw in that verse from Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the prayers. This is something they were doing together. And as we look through the book of Acts, we will see that this is something that was going on time and time again in the early church, that they were getting together to pray. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the risen Christ ascended to heaven, the apostles went back to Jerusalem and they gathered together in an, in an upper room of a building where they were staying and they joined together constantly in prayer. They joined together constantly in prayer. And then we see in Acts chapter 12, uh, a story maybe that you're familiar with where Peter was arrested by Herod and he was imprisoned. And it said the church was earnestly praying to God for him, that they had gathered together and they were praying to God for him. And you remember the end of that story that Peter was miraculously released from prison and went and found the rest of the church. So corporate prayer has always been an important part of the life of the church. And even the Lord's prayer starts with a recognition that we pray to God together. Our Father, our Father, He is the God and Father of all those who put their trust in him. And we come before him in prayer, at least at times, together as his children. And even when we pray alone, it's good for us to see it as joining our voices together with Christians in every time and place to offer our prayers before God. In his book, uh, Life Together, which he wrote about the Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer commends communal prayers as a necessary part of our shared life together. And he says that it is, in fact, the most normal thing in our common Christian life to pray together. It has been endowed with great promise by Jesus Christ. When we pray together as a church, we do it as an act of faith. And God uses it to strengthen us as the body of Christ. So we should pray together. And as we think about prayer this morning and praying together, uh, before we say anything else about it, I think it's worth taking a moment to appreciate the incredible gift that God has given to us in prayer in the first place. That the holy God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has invited us, sinful, mortal human beings that we are, to come into his presence in prayer, to talk to him, to share our lives with him, to ask things of him. And we trust and we believe that God gives us an audience with him, that he hears, that he he listens, that he actually responds to us when we pray to him, that God cares about us in this way. These are truths that are, are told to us in Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God cares for you, my friends, and wants to know about your life and wants to hear about it from you. This is the promise of Scripture. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
this verse from Hebrews is saying that there is, there is no need to cower before God or to hesitate before we go to him in prayer. Of course, we, we approach God humbly, but we can also do it confidently. And the reason we can do this is because of what Christ has done for us. He is our great high priest, something that, that Hebrews talks about as well just before this verse. And he intercedes for us with our heavenly father, And he has offered himself as the sacrifice that allows us to approach God this way. Whatever debt we owed before God, whatever amends that needed making all of the things that kept us from approaching God freely in this way, all of that has been taken care of through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now that he is sitting at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, we can approach God's throne of grace confidently. Sometimes, sometimes I think we take this unbelievable gift for granted. We forget what a gift and what a privilege it is that we can come into God's presence in this way. You might think about trying to, to gain an audience with an important person, the, the president of a country or the prime minister of a country. You might think of a queen or a king. Uh, Vale and I were watching The Crown last night. I don't know if anybody watches that show. I'm not commending it to you, but we were watching it last night, and I was struck that even the Prince of Wales had to wait. He couldn't just walk in to see his mother, the Queen, but there were certain protocols that he had to follow before he could go and see her. Think about what it would be like for one of us to just gain an audience with someone like that all of the protocols we'd have to go through, how unlikely it would be to be granted even at the end of all of that. And yet here we have the living God who invites us to come before him in prayer whenever we want and for as long as we want and to bring whatever it is we want to, uh, to bring before him in prayer. It's a wonderful gift that we have been given that God has given us in prayer. So let's not, let's, we need to take advantage of it. We need to take advantage of it. I like what Karl Barth says about the freedom to pray that we've been given in Christ. He says, uh, access to prayer is the clarity and joy given to man in Jesus Christ by which in his need and hope he may believe that the one true God is not far from him but near and not against him but for him. In prayer, we know that God is not far from us, but he is near to us, and that he is not against us, but he is for us. Prayer is God's gracious gift to us. We are invited and welcomed and encouraged to enter into his presence. So with all of that in mind, we're going to move to our main passage for today, these these two parables from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus uses to teach us about prayer. And the the scriptures are full of teaching and instructions on prayer. We'll get to that more later. But it's hard to narrow down to one passage what we should look at if we're giving a sermon on prayer. Uh, So these parables are not the only word. They're not the final word on prayer that we get from scripture. But they contain some important lessons for us on prayer. Things to keep in mind as we live into being a praying church. 
One of the great things about Jesus, these are parables that Jesus gives us, one of the things, great things about Jesus as a teacher is that a lot of the time he taught using parables. He, he used stories to teach, and they are a really powerful teaching tool. Any educator out there will tell you that, that stories are a great way to teach things. And sometimes it's good to have more straightforward teaching that just tells you like it is, that just says, this is the right answer, this is what you should do, right or wrong. But stories invite you into the lesson, and they, they force you to really think about what is going on. And you have characters that, that are complex in a good story, and situations that you could imagine happening in real life, where not everything is black and white necessarily. And so by telling parables, Jesus invites us, uh, his audience, to take all of their, their laws and doctrines, the people he was talking to, all of their closely held beliefs, and to think about how they play out in real life. Often Jesus would use parables to challenge his listeners' ideas about God and how we should relate to God. As if to say, you know, you thought God was like this, but he's really more like this. And the best parables, they impact the way that people think and act. They may change the way that people see things. It's the way that all of the best stories work, like movies or novels you might think of. And ultimately, they will change people's lives. You might think of the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, this, this story that we've known that for 2,000 years people have pointed to and said, that story changed my life because it taught me about grace. And it helped me to see God as a loving father. So if we pull back farther, we see that the power of story in the gospel, gospels themselves, the story of Jesus' life, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and that story has been changing people's lives since the time of Jesus himself. So our passage today is made up of two parables, both of which teach us something about prayer. And like I said, one of the great things about parables oftentimes is that they aren't always clean and neat, uh, which is again why they're so effective as teaching tools. You really have to wrestle with them to find their meaning. But sometimes, even with parables, we're given a gift and it's especially a gift if you're the one preaching, where the passage just tells you the point of the parable right up front. And that's what Jesus does in our parables today. So it's a nice thing. Chapter 18, verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not give up, right? So this is the point of this first parable. You ought always to pray and not give up. You can know this, okay? Still go home and wrestle with it, but here's the point. In the second parable, he does the same thing in verse 9. It says, he told this uh, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. So if you find yourself in that category, you need to listen to that second parable uh, specifically. It's pretty straightforward. So first, when it comes to praying, don't ever give up. When it comes to praying, don't ever give up, ever. That is a good lesson for us to hear because I wonder how many of us do lose heart and give up when we've been praying for something for a long time and we have not got the answer we're looking for. One of the great things about this parable is that it reminds us, again, that we are encouraged by God to pray and to come into God's holy presence with all that we have to see before him, the way that this widow did with this unjust judge. And there's a way to read this parable and to walk away thinking that if you ask for something enough times, eventually you're going to wear God down and he's just going to give in to you. Like, 
sometimes happens with parents and children. And I will confess that there have been times that I have given into things that I shouldn't have just to stop being asked. Vail and I call it our policy of appeasement uh, that we have with our children sometimes. But that's not the point of this parable. That's not the point here. This isn't a lesson in how to pester God into getting what you want, okay? So don't walk away thinking that, like the widow and this judge who only cares about himself. There's some good humor in this passage, by the way, and sometimes we miss out on that because of the way it's translated, but the judge is basically saying something to the effect of this, this woman is killing me, and I am going to give her what she wants. Let me just give her what she wants so she will stop bugging me, okay? She will leave me alone. The point here is that God is not like this judge, right? When we read this parable, we're not supposed to hear God is like the unjust judge. We're supposed to hear that God is not like the unjust judge. So even if an unjust judge will decide cases rightly sometimes, how much more can we trust a just and compassionate and loving God to act rightly on behalf of his people? If even an unjust judge will do the right thing sometimes, how much more can we trust our God to do the right thing for his people, to act justly on behalf of his people? And this is important too, what the widow is asking for. What this widow is asking for is important when we look at this. She's asking for justice from her adversaries and her oppressors. As a widow uh, in this society at that time, uh, this woman would have had no power or social standing. And her only hope was for this judge to rule on her behalf because she was being treated wrongly uh, in some way. And so she cried out to him day and night because this was her only hope. It reminds me of the story of the Exodus when the Israelites were, were being held in slavery in Egypt and were told that they cried out to God day and night to deliver them. And God did, but their prayers weren't answered for many, many years, many generations even. It was in God's time. That's something that we have to remember as well. The promise of this parable is that God can be trusted to give justice to those who put their trust in him. Verse eight says that he will do this quickly or speedily, but probably it's better to translate that word as, as certainly or surely. God will do this certainly or surely. God's justice can be counted on whether it is in this life or at the end of the age. The reason that we're told to pray and never to give up is as an act of faith on our part so that our trust is always placed in what God has done and will do through Jesus Christ. We pray continually and persistently in order to keep our trust in him. That is what we're looking at in this first parable here. The second parable is about how we approach God in prayer. Do we come with humility or do we come with self-righteousness? And the Pharisee in this parable is an example of, of everything that we are not to be like when we pray. I'm not critiquing him for following all of the rules, for being a good person. He's probably done a lot of good things in his life. But look at how he prays. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people because they have a lot of problems. Uh, We see more humor here, right? Imagine if I came up here on Sunday morning and I started to pray and I said, thank you, God, that I am not like all of these people out here. And especially thank you that I'm not like Trev because he has a lot of problems, right? Look at me. Look at all of the good things I've done. 
God, I am so grateful that you have made me the person I am, right? My, my job here would not last very long if I were to pray that way. This is not how we are meant to pray, right? But this Pharisee comes and says, look at me. Look at how good I am. This Pharisee is talking to God, but he's not asking God for anything. And it's not that we always have to ask God for something when we pray, but this guy doesn't even think he needs anything from God. He's got it all taken care of on his own. And on the other hand, we have the other main character in this parable, the tax collector. We don't know anything else about him other than that he is a tax collector. And people would have disliked him because of his profession. Tax collectors, they often took extra money from people for themselves. They were considered by many people to be traitors to Israel because they were working with the Romans, the the foreign oppressors. And so this man would have been looked down upon by people at the temple. As soon as he came in the room, there would have been a different feel in the room. His presence would have brought a sense of tension just by being there. He was disliked by others. And he comes to pray as well. And from the outside, you have someone who represents everything that is good about Israel, this Pharisee. Someone who the, and then you also have someone that the Israelites would have been ashamed of. But they are both sinners in need of salvation. And only one of them recognizes that. The tax collector approaches God humbly, standing far off, not even daring to look in God's direction. And he says, God, be merciful to me a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This man knows that he is in need. He knows that only God can meet that need. This was Martin Luther's great revelation that led to the the Protestant Reformation, that salvation can never be earned by being good enough. We are never going to be righteous enough on our own. And so it must be the free gift of God. It must be the free gift of God. And if anyone is to receive it, this is, this is the way that we do it. This is grace. And it comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we receive it by faith. The events of, of Holy Week were still in the future when Jesus was telling this parable. But it's clear that this tax collector's faith, the one in this parable, was in the mercy of God to justify him. It was his only hope that God might have mercy on him whereas the Pharisee was trusting in himself. Both of these parables teach us about prayer, that we should pray persistently and not lose heart, and that we should approach God humbly so that he will lift us up when the time comes. And taken together, we might learn something about prayer. This tax collector uh, prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, And it's a common prayer of the church. A version of this prayer is a common prayer throughout the church's history where people would say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is a prayer that each one of us should take with us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I remember one of my friends in seminary would pray that each time before he would pray a sermon. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner even as I come to bring your word before other people. There's a lot included in that short sentence, a humble acknowledgement of who we are before God, sinners who fall short of God's glory, but also a hopeful trust in God's willingness and ability to have mercy on us. 
that God can and does want to justify us. As we learn about prayer here, the main thread that runs through both of these parables is about God's character, that God is just and that God is merciful. And we can come to him in prayer, trusting in both of those things. What we can look towards is the fact that God will be faithful to the promises that he has made to Israel, that God will be faithful to the covenants, and also that God is working to set the world to rights. This is the promise of these parables, that God will justify and have mercy on those who put their trust in him. So these parables then give us some idea of how we should pray. When we pray alone, when we pray together, when we come before God as a congregation, that we should be persistent, that we should not give up, that we should put our trust in him, that we should come humbly, acknowledging our sin and our need for mercy and grace. But also then the question becomes, how then should we pray? And I know for a lot of people, this is what keeps us from praying Not so much a lack of faith, but a feeling that we don't know what we're doing. I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe some of you don't have a problem with that, but I know some people do. Uh, I would pray, but I don't know how, and I don't feel like I'm very good at it. And so I just have two encouragements in that regard. The first one is this, just do it, okay? Just do it. And the second one is this, let the scriptures teach you. So these are the two encouragements we have. The first one is this, just do it, just pray. If you want to get better at praying, just pray. In his book uh, simply titled Prayer, the author Richard Foster starts with the idea of simple prayer. He has a whole chapter about it, which is just talking to God, simple prayer. And he says it's the most common form of prayer that we see in scripture, simple prayer. He says, and so I urge you, Carry on an ongoing conversation with God about the daily stuff of life. For now, do not worry about proper praying. Just talk to God. Share your hearts. Share your sorrows. Share your joys freely and openly. God listens in compassion and love. Just like we do when our children come to us. He delights in our presence. And when we do this, we will discover something of inestimable value. We will discover that by praying, we learn to pray. So if you want to get better at praying, just pray. Pray and trust God to meet you as you do it. However awkward or strange it feels, no matter how unsure you are about yourself or whether you're doing it correctly or not, just pray. Just offer yourself before God in that way and let God meet you by his grace as you do so. And then the second one is this. Allow the scriptures to teach you how to pray. And this is what we said earlier, that the Bible is full of both instructions how to pray and teachings about prayer, but even better, the Bible is full of prayers. The Bible is full of prayers. And by reading and studying and praying them ourselves, we also learn better how to pray. The Psalms in particular are a wonderful resource that God has given to us. And the more time we spend with them, the more our prayer lives will be enriched and strengthened. And of course, the Lord's Prayer serves the same purpose, Jesus' teachings to his disciples about how to pray. In a sense, God himself teaches us how to pray through the prayers that he gives us in Scripture. So just pray. And let the scriptures teach you. Become a student of the scriptures and then pray. 
It's, it's almost like learning a new language. We study and then we practice. And then we study and then we practice. A lot of us here are, are learning languages or know languages that aren't our, our first language. So we, we are familiar with this idea. And we know that if we, if we practice without studying, we might get a little bit better, but not so much. But if we study without practicing, then we're also really not going to get much better at the language, right? So we study and then we practice. And we study and we practice. Read the Psalms and then pray. Read the Psalms and then pray. And over time, you will become stronger and more confident until eventually you will be doing this without even having to think about it. You will just pray without even having to stop and consider whether you're doing it correctly or not. So friends, let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray on our own, just ourselves with God Let us pray when we meet together with friends or family or in home groups or in Bible studies. And let us pray when we gather together as a church like we do here on Sunday mornings. Let us pray. Let us pray as humble children who who come before a loving father, believing that he desires good things for us. Let us pray as humble sinners who know that we are in need of mercy and with thanksgiving that it has been given to us. And let us pray in faith and never give up, putting our trust and our hope in all that God has promised us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of prayer and that you invite us into your presence, that you are the holy living true God, who has created the heavens and the earth, who has created each one of us in your image. And yet, Lord, even as we are sinners, as each one of us falls short of your glory, yet you still invite us into your presence. We thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, that that you have restored that relationship with us. And so we can come before you as beloved children, with you as our loving father, Trusting that you desire to give us good gifts. Trusting that you are working your justice and righteousness in this world. So Lord, would you increase our faith? Would you make us a people of prayer? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.